0: Hello and welcome to Wismed On Call, a bi-weekly podcast from the Wisconsin Medical Society that looks at some of the top issues affecting patients and the practice of medicine in Wisconsin. I'm Mark Rappentine, Senior Vice President of Government Relations.
1: And I'm John Rather, the Society's General Counsel.
0: Which means I'm watching my uh, words very carefully today. We're taping this edition on Thursday, June 28th, 2018, And yesterday, the Wisconsin Supreme Court issued a long-awaited decision that reinstates the cap on non-economic damages in medical liability cases. Uh, This particular case we're talking about is Mayo versus the Injured Patients and Families Compensation Fund. It's something the society has been involved in and following very closely. Um, John, I think uh, uh, it's always interesting when cases come out the morning of and, and there's always a time that they get released. And I know you and I yesterday were hitting F5 on our computers to see when it actually popped up. And when it did, you know, the first thing we probably look at is who wrote the who wrote the, the majority opinion.
1: Yeah, you start with who wrote it, and then you skip right to, it's usually within the first few paragraphs, what they actually decided the outcome is.
0: And in the second paragraph of the decision itself, um, the just, uh, Chief Justice Patience Sack hit on three major holdings. I thought that'd be a good way to structure at least the beginning of the podcast. Um, the first thing she wrote was that, the, on, a, on behalf of a 5-2 majority, mm-hmm. that rational basis is the proper standard to judge constitutionality of the $750,000 non-economic damages cap. What the heck does that mean?
1: Yeah, get right into the weeds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so when you look at whether a law survives constitutional challenge, we um, use different standards. So for most legislation, we go by rational basis, which is, was there a reason a rational reason why the legislature enacted the law. Then there's higher levels of scrutiny you get up to if you're talking about fundamental constitutional rights like free speech cases or racial discrimination. But for this, they started off strong by saying, this is the lens through which we're gonna look at this case and other similar cases. And that was actually controversial because um, the previous Supreme Court case back in 2005, the Ferdinand decision, had applied a modified version of rational basis they called it rational basis with teeth which uh, nobody really knew how to apply since and had been heavily criticized so this is judge rogensack putting down the marker right away saying we're resetting the lens through which we're going to talk about this
0: so the second part of that holding in the second paragraph was the cap is constitutional on its face and as applied to the Mayo. So that kind of talks about two different things, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, there was two separate types of challenges and actually they followed split paths through the court systems. Even at the trial court level, um, that judge had said the cap is constitutional as a whole, um, but on the particular facts of this case, we don't think it's constitutional as applied. Um, so right now, we, or right there, we know both circumstances are constitutional.
0: And then the third point that she brought out was that Ferdin, which you had just recently referenced, Ferdin erroneously invaded the province of the legislature and applied an erroneous standard of review. Now, when I read that, I was like, well, here's the hammer. Um, And that was something that maybe we weren't necessarily anticipating as strong of a a statement on. But what did you think when you saw that?
1: Yeah, they didn't have to go that way. They could have said... uh, we're not saying Ferdinand was wrongly decided, but we think this cap is different than the last cap, the legislature did its homework, and we think it passes this amorphous rational basis with T standard. Remember, Justice Rogensack wrote the dissent in the Ferdin decision, so you almost get the impression that she was chomping at the bit uh, to just get rid of what she thought was wrongly decided over a decade ago. Um, and instead of having to do a little bit more legal gymnastics in analyzing this case under the Ferdinand lens, just reset right there, get rid of Ferdin, and let's get back to rational basis review the way it's meant to be.
0: So, you know, these cases are always very detailed and very in the weeds, as we've already said. Um, but I think the layperson, and in particular the legislature, tends to think about things a little bit more generally. And I know that in, in the amicus brief, the friend of the court brief, that the Medical Society submitted to the Supreme Court, and you were a major part of that, um, obviously, as the general counsel working with with private counsel, um, you all emphasized an an area of argument about the cap that is different uh, than perhaps we had done in the past. So when you get to page um page three of the printed opinion, and uh, it typically starts with uh, kind of an outline type structure, and so it's it's you know section one background, but then the subsection says, the Guaranteed Payment System. And I would imagine that when you saw that as a heading, you were pretty pleased about that.
1: Yeah, that's gratifying right off the bat. Uh, it wasn't as if we came up with this out of nowhere. This is something Justice Rogensack had glommed onto and heard in her dissent in Ferdin, but something that really uh, we felt strongly about. We often hear the cap get mischaracterized as being a benefit to the healthcare community at the expense of patients because they have their damages limited. It couldn't be farther from the truth. In reality, it's beneficial to both. And Justice Rogensack hits right away on why that's true. In most states, physicians aren't even required by law to have medical malpractice insurance, which means that if there is a lawsuit based on malpractice, you can get any side of the judgment the jury will give you, but there might be no money to collect against that judgment. In Wisconsin, there is a guaranteed payment system, as Justice Rogan act lays down, that between Wisconsin requiring you need to have a million dollars in minimum insurance and then pay into the fund, which pays all damages allowed by law after that, you have a guaranteed, unlimitedly deep pocket to draw your judgment from um, whatever's awarded by a jury and allowed by law. So this is the critical distinction that was kind of missed in Ferdinand is how beneficial that is to a patient. And where you see that come out especially is in the court of appeals they said, well, the cap is the most problematic to the most severely injured because if your injuries are smaller, $750,000 in pain and suffering might be at the upper end of what you would receive anyway. So the cap may not limit what you get. So it only really comes into play or hurts the most those with the most severe injuries, the most pain and suffering. Um, That misses the point that the cap is what backs up the fund, and the fund is that much more important the more injuries you have because a physician might be able to, uh, you know, have assets or have some minimum level of insurance to pay $500,000, maybe even a million dollars. But when you get into $16.5 million in non-economic damages, there's nobody but something like the fund that's going to be able to cover those damages. So the the most severely injured patients are the ones that need this system the most. Uh, And that's flipping the script, and I think that's incredibly important and the court got it here.
0: Well, and as someone that deals with the legislature and is making the arguments in that body, it certainly resonates with what we talk about as well, in that the cap is a pillar, it's a part of the whole, the whole is very important. And then reminding folks in Wisconsin, you know, who know a lot of times, all they know is what's going on in Wisconsin when it comes to this area. Um, reminding them how different we are than other states, uh, how different states are in much different situations when it comes to the ability of an injured patient to be able to access uh, funds just for their own economic damages, and that's that's a big thing. One, one thing I, I liked about uh, Justice Sachs' explanation of the background and going through the process was kind of dispelling some of the myths that have been put out there by some sides whenever you talk about medical liability in policymaking. Um, and, and also just some of the basic facts and data, including just the, the amount of payments that have come out of the Injured Patients and Families Compensation Fund since it was first uh, put together in 1975. So they, they kind of had uh, three numbers that they highlighted. from the, From the inception in 75 through March of 2005, the fund has paid more than $586 million in claims. Then the court pointed out that by the end of twenty uh, of two thousand and seven, that had increased to six hundred and sixty-six million, and then ten years later, through the end of December of seventeen, it was up to eight hundred and sixty-six million dollars. Uh, that's paragraph eight, if you're following at home and want to see the citations. That was interesting, as well as the the other myth that gets put away sometimes is um, that it's too hard to bring cases and therefore these cases aren't being brought forward. I think that just the raw numbers of the amount that's been paid out since 75, it kind of dispels that, but also how the the case fluctuation year by year is interesting. So in 2013-14 there were 83 potential uh, claims that were pending. In 15-16 it was down to 40, but then the next uh, biennium, 16-17, it was back up to 55. So I think Justice Rogensack took an interesting walk through the realities of what you in the legal shops deal with all the time in this area and how important was that to to include in the opinion do you think? I think it was
1: a direct response to those that claim that we know where the trends are going, that for example the fund has a lot of money and we see that claims numbers are down nationally or even within the state. And therefore, we can predict the future. We know that you know, there's always gonna be enough money and that claims are always gonna go down. And what she's pointing out is, that's not true. I mean, think what the fund is charged with doing. They're trying to predict the number of lawsuits of an unknown type and severity that it could be, that is legally responsible for providing an unlimited amount of excess insurance coverage for. That's a heavy task. And so, it's paid out a lot of money it's hard to predict how many of these cases are going to come and how big they are. But also it ties in, and it's later in the decision, um, there was a theory put forth by the plaintiffs that, and it was in the Furden decision, which Justice Abramson um, wrote in 2005, saying that even if a, a, a cap is constitutional when it's created, if there's a change in circumstances later on, that can make something constitutional unconstitutional. And what's strange about that logic to me is you, the legislature perceives a problem. And it points out those problems in the statute. You know, we're, we're worried about defensive medicine, the ability to uh, retain and attract physicians, the cost of insurance premiums for physicians, the cost of fund assessments. So we put in place this cap as part of a comprehensive system. Now the plaintiffs are saying, and Justice Abrams has said in 2005, sure, that might have been true then, but you don't have that problem now. There's no longer a quote-unquote liability crisis the fund has a healthy asset and uh, a balanced position. So there's changed positions. That's like saying, there's a problem, we address the problem, so therefore we're gonna get rid of the solution that prevented the problem from occurring. Mm-hmm. And she nips that right in the bud and saying, it does a lot, it's hard to predict what the future's gonna be, and it's, we're not gonna say that just because we're okay now, we don't need the protections that helps us get to this st- uh, stability in our system.
0: So in the world of, uh... Medical society advocacy, I think a lot of times people think of my shop and what we do in the legislature and the executive branch, but clearly on cases like this, it shows the vast importance of advocacy in the judiciary and and this is where it all came home to roost this week is on this very, very important decision. What was nice for me to read uh, in the in the opinion is that you know the the court doesn't just defer a hundred percent to the legislature and what they do in bills they pass they do have some uh, they do take a look at what went into it. And back when the Ferdin decision came down in 05, uh, the Medical Society was uh, you know, very, very deeply involved in the um, legislature's medical malpractice task force that was put together uh, right away after the decision. Um, I remember that um, uh, there were, uh, the Medical Society and some other healthcare advocates went into Speaker John Gard's office, and, uh, who was Speaker at the time, and, and talked about how important it was to try to fix this problem. Um, in fact, yesterday, which was interesting, and in some of the you know, you got a lot of texts and emails. I got texts and emails. One of the texts I got from somebody was former Representative Kurt Gillo, uh, who was uh, an Assembly rep at the time from Mequon, who ended up chairing this this malpractice task force, and he was obviously pleased that the bill that he put together was um, was successful in in the constitutional challenge. Um, and and the justice rogensack went through a lot about what this task force did back in the day they didn't just pick a number out of the air they didn't just say well in response to to the ferdin case here's what the new bill is they went through some pretty exhaustive sets of meetings uh, that included membership from our the society's current uh, ceo dr bud chumley who was part of that uh, as well as others in the healthcare world uh, and, and laid out exactly what you just talked about, the broad aspects of how a medical liability cap on non-economic damages uh, influences the system as a whole. Uh, and and I, I think the uh, in paragraph 43 on the facial challenge aspect, the justice highlighted this important part and said, you know quote, we conclude that the legislature's comprehensive plan that guarantees payment while controlling liability for medical malpractice through the use of insurance, contributions to the fund, and a cap on non-economic damages has a rational basis. And therefore it is not facially unconstitutional. So I think this speaks to how advocacy in these areas can be seen kind of in these little windows of time. And some people might be thinking, well, you know, uh, John Rather in his shop at the Med Society only had to deal with this caps issue since it it was first filed in Milwaukee County Circuit Court till, you know, in our case yesterday when the case was decided. But it's such a long game. They look back to the mid 2000s to see what went on. And uh, it's gotta be hard for you uh, to to continue to think about all this stuff as it goes on when you're putting your amicus briefs together.
1: Well, and and I view what we do as a continuum, right? I mean, we've seen this in other cases, whether it be informed consent or CAPS, where we see what's happening out there in the real world, uh, maybe what's happening in the courtrooms, and you fight as much as you can in the courtrooms to uh, keep the medical liability environment uh, what it should be and as balanced as it has been. If we're successful, great. We loop back to the monitoring and, you know, if there's other issues, we keep talking to people. If we don't get the outcome we want, say in the Gendry decision in 2012, um, then we go shift over to the GR side into your shop and you and I start talking about what can we talk to the legislators about. And genre is actually a good example because then you work through the legislative thing Then after that, we were bouncing it back and forth because you had to rewrite jury instructions even after you changed the law. And now we're still watching in the courtrooms. How is that new law being interpreted? How are juries perceiving it? So it never really ends. It's more just a continuum of our entire advocacy portfolio in how we're always looking, always talking to people so that we know what's going on and so that we can be out in front of things as much as possible.
0: So when the, uh, we're finishing up here, we're getting toward the end, um, when the society sued the state when uh, the state raided the patient's compensation fund back in the day, um, and we had a, a very positive opinion come out of the Supreme Court that said, no, you can't do that, uh, the money's returned. A lot of people figured that, okay, that was a moment in time where now the fund is pretty much untouchable by, by outside forces in the government that want to find a pot of money to be able to raid from. And so that was kind of a boom, stake in the ground. Do you think that this case and this decision can serve as a similar stake in the ground, and how much, or how much, maybe not so much?
1: I think it's about as good as you can get. This is the the ideal outcome in terms of stabilizing the law. Um, obviously, when you had the fund rate decision at the Supreme Court, when they flat out said hands off, that's the gold standard here. It, Justice Rogan, and even in the concurrences, uh, concurrence that was filed go out of their way to point out that no matter where the law goes in the future on analyzing constitutional challenges, this is at the extreme of where we should be deferring to the legislature because the courts are just not well equipped to do these balances of, um, you know, some people are capped in certain situations but it's for the good of the whole, it's good of every patient in the state having access to this fund. That's a uniquely legislative thing. And this is at the extreme of where we should be um, making sure the legislature did their homework and then the court should keep their hands off. So nothing is ever uh, you know, completely bulletproof. But in terms of the stability of our cap, I would say this is at its strongest point it's been since there's been a cap in Wisconsin. That's going back to the 70s. I don't think we've ever seen... Uh, this strong of a position from the court, this unambiguous of a position, putting the issue in their minds to rest. So, you know, we can never say for certain, but I think this is as good as we can hope for.
0: So then what it transfers back to my shop then, because the legislature can clearly make changes um, and the court has laid out a pretty strict um, um, set of deference to the legislature. So there could be attempts to raise the cap level. There could be attempts to remove the cap. Um, so we'll be thinking about that going down the road. One of the good things is that back when this cap was uh, put, put back into the statutes, it passed in a very bipartisan nature uh, in both houses. It was 75 out of, at that point, 98 votes in the assembly voted for the cap, and then 25 out of 33 state senators voted for the cap. This is a bipartisan issue. Um, We're very blessed in Wisconsin that we we tend to not have to fight the the caps and medical stability in a partisan way. It's much more of a... um it's just it's just different, and so we're, we're we're very happy that we can reach out to both sides of the aisle and just talk about the facts and data, and that has sway. So I guess the burden's on 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 me now, and and um, to to figure out how to do this kind of protection. So, uh, where so where else from here do you think? What what else uh, do we have to think about when it comes to this area of the law, um, in the next say like five or or so years?
1: Well, I think we've seen a signal too from this court that they get that our medical liability system is a comprehensive one. And so they understand that you shouldn't start carving out little bits and parts of it. You shouldn't just pull the cap out. You shouldn't start messing with fund assessments or who's eligible for the fund or you know insurance rates, things like that. So what will be interesting to see is there's always people looking to challenge different aspects of that. Um, plaintiff's attorneys are very creative, very talented people. But I think this sets a higher bar for them to pass in order to make those challenges because they don't have to just prove that this particular aspect of this comprehensive system is in their mind uh, illegal or unconstitutional. They have to prove the system as a whole is a bad thing, either legally or at least on a policy level. And that's a much harder thing to do than to just try to carve out a small niche. So we go back to always talking to defense attorneys, knowing what's going on. I mean, we knew this case existed before the jury had even reached a verdict. Um, just, you know, one of uh, the defense attorneys in the case gave us a heads up. So we're always looking for what is the next possible issue, but um, this is a system that works for all involved. So there's not the immediacy to go out and find the next challenge. And I th- I'm hoping we're gonna see some stability for quite some time.
0: All right, well that's something we can all hope for, for sure, so nice job on the case and, and uh, congratulations for your work on that. I know that there's a, a lot of physicians out there that I heard from that are very grateful for what the society did and you were instrumental in that, so so good job there. Um, that'll wrap up this edition of WisMed On Call. If you liked what you heard and, you know, what the heck, if you didn't like what you heard, uh, visit our website, www.wisconsinmedicalsociety.org And look for future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have suggestions or feedback, you can send an email to communications at wismed.org. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening to Wismed On Call.